Om Namo Narayanaya. Welcome back. Today, we're starting a three-part video series where I'm looking at the Sri Bhakti Sutra, also known as the Narada Bhakti Sutra, supposedly written by the great sage Srila Narada Muni. I haven't read this yet, but I read about it on Wikipedia, and I thought it was really interesting, so I dug it up and thought we would discover it together here. The link to the Wikipedia page is down below. I've decided to do this in three videos, divided out um, somewhat thematically. Uh, the, today's video, we'll be looking at the definition of bhakti, because bhakti is obviously what this <laughs> sutra is about. From there, we'll be looking at the importance of renunciation and self-surrender, and then looking at exemplars of divine love. The next video, which is chapters 4 through 6, if you want to be technical, endorses bhakti as the highest goal of human life. From there, suggestions are given on how to practice divine love. And finally, the book explains the importance of seeking holy company. In the final video, chapters 7, 8, and 9, we'll be discussing the difference between preparatory and supreme devotion, the sutra covers the forms of divine love and then ends recommending the practice of ethical values and worship of God. So it's the big picture of bhakti, essence, the essence of bhakti, you could say. Thoughts, comments, questions, criticisms, um, anything at all, you know where they go. Love to hear from you as we explore this together over the next three videos. I'm going to read it, and then, as always, in all my videos, just say a few words after the fact, because this isn't an audiobook or anything, just discovering these classic great scriptures and reading them and digesting them, and in turn, maybe having something in us change, and also, for me, this is a form of worship. Learn reading these scriptures is a form of worship. That's what this whole channel is about. So here we go. Let's delve in. Now, therefore, I shall try to explain the process of devotional service. The highest stage of devotional service is pure love of Godhead. Such stage of devotional service is eternal. Upon achieving that transcendental devotional service, a man becomes perfect, immortal, and peaceful. A person engaged in pure devotional service does not desire anything for material sense gratification, does not lament for any loss, does not hate anything, does not enjoy anything for his personal account, nor does he become very enthusiastic in material activity. One who understands perfectly the process of devotional service becomes intoxicated in its discharge. He becomes charmed by it and thus enjoys his whole self being engaged in the service of the Supreme Self. There is no question of lust in pure devotional service, because such service is free from all sense gratification. Confinement within the boundary of devotional service means to give up all kinds of social and religious activities. Confinement within the boundary of devotional service also means to repose one's love in the Lord alone and to avoid the non-devotees who oppose the service of the Lord. 
In devotional service, one renounces everything and takes shelter of the Supreme Personality of Godhead without relying on anyone else for protection. One should be reluctant to engage in activities that are not favorable for discharging devotional activities. And one should accept only activities favorable for devotional service. When one is fixed with certainty and determination in the knowledge that devotional service is the only means for gaining the perfection of life, he must follow the scriptural injunctions in that direction. Otherwise, there is every possibility of falling down. One should act socially and politically, and in the matter of eating, just enough to keep the body fit till the end of life. The symptoms of devotional service are described below in accordance with various authoritative opinions. Vyasa defines devotional service as the attachment to the worship and service of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Gargamuni defines devotional service as attachment to hearing narrations about the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Sandilya defines devotional service as overwhelming love for the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Narada defines devotional service as offering all activities to the Supreme Personality of Godhead and being very concerned to never forget Him. All these definitions are correct. These aspects of devotional service may be seen in the gopis of Viraja. Even though the gopis were filled with devotion for Lord Krishna, they remained unaware of his glorious position as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. For them, this was not a defect. Unaware of Lord Krishna's exalted position, the gopis loved him like a paramour. For this, there is not fault on the gopis' part. They were completely surrendered to the Lord. Their only happiness was in seeing that he is happy. And we're going to end there. Um, verse 24. So I forgot to mention at the beginning that there are actually multiple um, versions of this translated into English. So you may see another version of this um, that may look a lot alike, but sounds a little different. There is a line here I wanted to mention. Um, here it is. Verse, verse 12. It said, when one is fixed with certainty and determination and the knowledge that devotional service is the only means for gaining the perfection of life, he must follow the scriptural injunctions in that direction. First of all, this says he. I'm filming this in 2022. It could be she, they, it. I, this is probably an accurate translation, which I think is important, but this was also speaking to men because at the time women weren't necessarily going into this world or they weren't really welcomed in it. it it was weird i don't want to go into a history there were women involved who were bhaktis but he was speaking to his world just change the he to she if you need to i don't think he would mind i think if he was writing today he would put he or she Okay, but what I wanted to comment about this wasn't the pronoun, it was the idea of the scriptural injunctions in that direction. That is actually something I don't think happens. <laughs> but I think it's really important. 
So I'm reading texts on this channel because I had read about texts, read about great scriptures like the Srimad Bhagavatam, but I had not read them myself. But I read that they were really important and that you should be following them. But I hadn't read them, and actually I knew very few people who've read a lot of these old texts. But like me, they've read about them. And I really felt like, how can I follow something if I haven't read it? Now, of course, the same question was asked, and the Catholic Church converted their, you know, uh, rituals from Latin to English or the native language because people were saying, well, you're, you're preaching to us, but we want to know the words themselves. And eventually the church said, okay, uh, I think this is something, though, that gets glossed over. We kind of say we're following the scriptures, but we haven't read the scriptures. How do we know we're following the scriptures? We're, we're following the scriptures in the same way that someone going to Catholic Church in the 1800s was following the Bible just by listening to what the priest said, and that was all they had on it. Was the priest always correct? Well, the history of the Catholic Church will say no, not always. Or it will show that they weren't always correct. So I really feel like this is important. One of the things, though, is in modern day, spirituality and religion are basically now two different things. If you're religious, you're bad because you follow scripture. But if you're spiritual, you're kind of open and, you know, you're open to a lot of stuff and you do a lot of stuff. That's kind of how the definition is now. But how many people do you know who are very scriptural, who, uh, sorry, spiritual, but don't follow really any scriptures or anything? They just kind of go around. And yet, you may wonder what they're getting. They seem to always be stuck in a rut. They seem to always be grasping or searching or, or seeking or something. I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them feel ungrounded sometimes, or in my experience. And then you see religious people who seem very grounded. Now, sometimes they can be too grounded. Sometimes they can be a little bit too orthodox. But you, you look at them and you go, wow, they've really got a foundation they're working on. You may not agree with it, but you, you will confess that they have something. And I think, for me, I gravitate to that a little bit. I like that foundation. Not because I'm not open-minded, not because I want someone to tell me what to do, not because I can't think for myself, but because there's great wisdom in that foundation, and I think it keeps you grounded. And I tell my girlfriend, you know, she'll say something to me, a compliment, like, oh, your hair's looking good. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I do that to keep my ego in check, because I'm a little vain about my hair. It never looks good on these videos, but once I get it going for work and it's all puffed up, I get a little vain and I fix it and fuss it. And so I gotta keep my ego in check. And to me, the scriptures are like that. They keep your ego in check. They keep you grounded. I think you should find a medium ground between incredibly orthodox, very, you know, digging into the scriptures completely and following them word perfect, and the more open-minded spiritual aspect. I think there is a middle ground. But I think we are in a society now, here in the Kali Yuga, where we tend to see one or the other. You're either with scriptures or you're jettisoning the scriptures. Uh, and if you're not jettisoning them, but you're kind of with them, it's kind of wishy, they change. And I mean, I know so many spiritual folks who go through gurus every year, and, and it's just like they, they seem ungrounded. And for me, scriptures are grounding. They're very grounding. They keep your ego in check. They keep you focused. And they teach you things. They really teach you things. 
So I, I really see that line and I'm like, that's, that's really important to remember, but it's something we so want to gloss over. And that's why this channel is here. I'm reading these scriptures. Do I follow every word of them? No. I've openly confessed that I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm reading it and I'm learning it and I'm thinking about it. And if you say to me, well, you know, you're reading scriptures and following religion that endorses vegetarianism, are you one? I'll go, no, I'll be honest with you. And you'll say, why? And I say, well, honestly, it's just, I just don't feel comfortable being one. Having been one once before, and I'm a marathon runner, I just am not really good with food. And I happen to know, based on my practice marathon running, that I often go out running and I can barely run a mile because I'm not well-nourished. So I'm afraid of being a vegetarian. There, you can call me a hypocrite, but at least I have an answer for you. And that's, that's where I am and that's where I stand. And, and this thought was kind of off the cuff, as they always are. So please excuse me. Maybe you agree, disagree. I partly just say this just to open the channels for conversation um, and just to get people talking. Anyways, we'll pick up this uh, sutra in the next video. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching all my videos. Feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to support this channel. Um, check out my website. All those links are down below. And I will check you out for the second part of the three of the Narada Bhakti Sutra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Rama Hare Hare.